from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. This week, we're going to talk the reality of data privacy. I've been reading many news articles lately and following along on other broadcasts, and I'm really passionate about this issue and want to share here with everybody what's actually going on out there from a data collection perspective. Should you be panicked and worried about Facebook or Google? And what is privacy? As you go back to Eric Schmidt's testimony a long time ago in front of Congress so at Google when he was the chairman there, they'd asked him and, and his famous comment was roughly along the lines of, uh, if you don't want us to know about it, perhaps you shouldn't be doing it. And that's pretty true. And this is not just true of the tech companies and not just Google and Facebook and, and the information they're collecting to serve advertisements with their business model, but there's many more subtle things along the way. So this is actually going to be our first monologue episode of CyberTalk Radio. We've always had guests on to talk through this one, but here I believe that it was going to be best for me just to go ahead and lay this out and cover data privacy for you. So if this is a topic you're interested in learning more about, but you're not going to be able to stay on air with us for the full broadcast. We'll put the replay of this up on our website, www.cybertalkradio.com on Tuesday. If you are listening to that replay and rebroadcast via iTunes podcasts or Pocket Casts on Android or on our YouTube channel where you can look at a great picture of James, my producer, and I here as we record this week's program. Thank you for joining us there online. You can talk to CyberTalk Radio on Twitter, Facebook, or you can email us as well or use a contact form through our website. You you can visit us via VPN if you're worried about your privacy, but that may not actually keep you private. And that's what we're going to dive into next. So this is going to get real nerdy at some point in the program. I'm going to try to keep it at a level where if you're listening here on the radio, you're going to be able to understand it. But I also want to provide some depth for the folks that may catch this on a podcast later so they can dig in and understand from a technology view what they might be able to build as a real product to actually provide privacy for folks. So the concept of free services that are free to you as the user of them that are powered by the economics of advertising behind the scenes are not new. This is not just a Google and Facebook thing. I think everyone listening in this audience grew up at least in the radio era. And uh, radio broadcast over 1200 AM here is paid for by advertising. You're not paying to listen to this broadcast if you're listening to it on 1200 AM right now. And we know as a broadcaster that this is serving, depending on how the AM radio waves are bouncing around, definitely San Antonio and the surrounding area, but maybe even across this, the 37 states all through the whole middle of America as we air late on Saturday night, that AM signal may bounce all over the place. So is that as precise as Facebook's demographic targeting? Not really. But then through the, the history of knowing who our audience is, seeing people sending us feedback and going in there, we can learn more about our audience, and that demographic information gets collected. If you go to a billboard operator, they can tell you lots about the information of the people that drive by that billboard every day, total number of cars going by, 
what the race, the income level, and all sorts of things based off of data they've collected through those traffic patterns. And there's all sorts of different ways that information gets collected. Some via things as simple as the, the census, where that census gets filled out and provided every 10 years at a broad level snapshot to folks, down to much more granular data collection methods for those number of cars coming by and and measuring that traffic counting, uh, whether it's using in Texas, maybe the uh, TxDOT traffic camera feed, and you can take that video feed and you can run it into a computer now to process and you can see the number of cars, you can see the make and model of the cars, you can see the model years of the cars, you could estimate the cost of those cars. Using some of that, you could estimate the income level of the people that have that car and what their likely car payment is and what they could afford and all sorts of things. And using a stitch through network of a number of cameras and looking at all those feeds, you could even determine maybe how far people are driving, how many different billboards if you had an advertiser that wanted to be able to show a certain ad or a series of ads to people what percentage of the cars are going to see all three of these billboards along a route so you, you start thinking how you're getting tracked online on the internet and it's not just at the internet there was a news article a few years back that talked about tracking at the the retail level and there's a few different ways at the the retail store level and i'm working my way through from a data privacy perspective from offline through to online and and trying to share that it's not just advertising business models on the internet. Advertising business models are everywhere. Moving down into the, the retail side of the world. So if you have a, a Visa or MasterCard, have you read that cardholder agreement and what they're allowed to do with your data and information? And then you have the agreement with the, the merchant bank. So whatever bank name is on the card, they have one agreement with you and things that they're allowed to do with the, your purchase data. And then Visa and MasterCard have a separate agreement that's even smaller font and tiny and not even as easy to read as the terms of service online. Go try to find the general terms of service online for, for Visa, MasterCard, and those sorts of things uh, and tie it in specifically with your bank and your region and your state. And what are the, the rules there about what they're allowed to collect, who they're allowed to sell it to, how long they're allowed to keep it, what they have to do from a privacy perspective to store it. And you'll find out that maybe those folks, the, the big internet guys, are making it much more transparent and easy actually to manage your privacy than some of the other services that you you haven't realized yet that are compromising that privacy. So if you are like me, I use one credit card to pay for almost everything. There's just certain areas of my life I've given up, but privacy of some things, it, it does not matter completely. Like the folks that have it um, are using it to send me targeted mail. So how many times have you gone to a, a store, you pay with a credit card there, but you don't sign up for a membership club or anything else and then a few weeks later you go out to, to your mailbox and you get your mail and there's the catalog from that store whether it's a uh, target is all of a sudden sending you stuff in the mail now or bed bath and beyond or whatever store you went shopping at and you paid with a credit card and didn't give them your address or anything else but now all of a sudden that stuff's showing up in your mailbox how do you think that got there it's called target it's called retargeting so you've heard of retargeting ads on the internet, maybe where you go to a website and then those ads follow you across the, the internet. That's the physical version of retargeting. So they knew you were in their store, you bought something, and now they're sending you other information. And if you go through and you join their frequent shopper club or the rest of those sorts of things, then you've now 
kind of opted in. It's like subscribing to somebody's mailing list online. And now you've given them permission to send you more things in exchange for giving you some information, some value, some coupons, those type of, of sharing there uh, where you're trading privacy uh, for coupons to a store, which is, is advertising and discount again. So you look at how this privacy piece is collected and you start to think now, well, who has the best view into my life? Who can really see what's going on? Well, you, you have social interactions in your life that are non-monetary based. And that is going to be maybe your your bartender. If you, you happen to hang out, and your best friend is your bartender. And if that's the case, you, you need a new friend sitting next to you at the bar, not just a bartender. But there's someone that you're having social conversations with. And those conversations may or may not be overheard, but that's a physical talking conversation. If you move from there into communicating with somebody over a technological medium, if you're going to send text messages, if you're going to log into Facebook, if you're going to log into a messaging app like, a, let's say, Telegram here, which just recently uh, has caused some fun over in Russia. They've blocked the entire Amazon and Google cloud IP ranges trying to block Telegram inside the country of Russia. They're having a hard time surveilling communications uh, over that private messaging service. We'll get into some more detail about trying to obfuscate your communications online here in the second half of the program in a much more in-depth technical manner. And I'll talk about, I think, the problems that Russia is going to run into uh, in an effort to block Telegram or those type of services. So you, you have these social interactions that are non-monetary based and different folks, whether it's a live in-person conversation on through to different technology mediums, have a different access and perspective to collect data on who you talk with, how frequently, how long do you have conversations with them. And, but, and if you move into monetary transactions and you start to look at, at what are you willing to exchange money for? So you, you have your bank and your bank collects lots of information about you. There are certain things they're allowed to do with it, certain things they're not allowed to do with it. Then you have credit card agreements, you have the credit reporting agencies where a certain information gets passed from your bank to a reporting agency. Uh, we're seeing uh, a, a number of folks roll out some, some pretty comprehensive documentation now thanks to GDPR uh, in Europe. And this will roll out and show many folks what this information collection and sharing infrastructure actually looks like. So one of the big banks just published who are all the third parties that they share information with when you sign up for an account with their bank. And it was over 300 different services. And some of this is they outsource their help desk uh, support. So if you're going to call for help on how to log into your bank account, that's a third party company. They're not employees of the actual bank. So in the information sharing agreement, it says they're going to share information about your account with this subcontractor, this subcontractor is going to use that to provide you support on your bank account. So some of the, the places where your information is being shared is in order to provide you the service you actually paid for because that service is delivered by multiple legal entities. Then there are other cases where your information is shared so that someone can learn more about you to either customize the product specifically for you or to serve you advertisements to get you to uh, buy another product to upsell you to cross sell you and and those sorts of things so they, you're looking at user behavior uh, it, it might be one where your bank 
notices that your uh, direct deposit goes up. You got a pay raise or you got a new job and you're now direct depositing more. And maybe with that increased direct deposit, now they're going to send you a, a promo offer letting you know that they've got uh, low interest car loans over the summer. So your bank is that's an example of using your information on your account as a targeted ad, uh, to be able to serve you a potentially relevant targeted advertisement. You may be thinking about buying a car and it's nice to know that they've got a low interest program uh, coming over the summer. So in some of these areas, you're you're trading privacy for efficiency. It's, you're getting things surfaced to you that are useful. In other cases, that privacy and information is getting traded to you for in order to manipulate you. And that's where you get into some of the nefarious uh, side of the lack of privacy and whether that manipulation is a criminal-style manipulation that's a blackmail or uh, a non-criminal manipulation that's maybe just getting you to do something that is not positive for you. It's not healthy, but it's not illegal. I mean, if you, you look at, and we've started regulating some of this type of advertising, like you can't advertise cigarettes on television during kids' shows. I mean, there's just one example, but there's all sorts of spots now where advertising has been restricted because we realize that it can be used in a manipulative way. I mean, like if you're watching afternoon cartoons on the Disney Kids Network. Now, maybe Disney Kids wouldn't take a cigarette company as an advertiser because they know it would offend their audience. Maybe they would um, if that advertiser offered enough money, but there's this is one where regulation stepped in and that's not even allowed to happen anymore. And on the internet, as you, you look at Google, Facebook, you have um, YouTube, and there's been a number of folks have said, I, I don't want my ad next to this content. So it, this, it's almost flipped and gone the other direction online, where Disney might have told the cigarette company years ago, I don't want to run a cigarette advertisement during a Disney kids show. On the internet, you have brands now telling the actual content channels, I, want, I don't want to run my ad next to your content unless you can tell me what type of show. So if I was looking to sell children's clothing, I want to run that next to friendly, happy videos that kids should be watching online that are things that I would show my own children. I don't want it to run next to some twisted video that is manipulating your kids to hate themselves. And that type of stuff is out there and it's ending up online because it, it, with the publishing platforms, they try to catch these things, but it, it's not edited and curated the same way a broadcast television or a radio broadcast is here on 1200 WAI. We have folks that listen to this before it goes on air. If I was doing things to manipulate our audience in a, a negative way that violated the broadcasting regulations and laws, uh, if I used, I think there's six, James, is it six words that I'm not allowed to use on the air? Seven. There's some number of words I'm not allowed to say on the air. Uh, I'm not going to say them today. He's laughing. He's got a big red button over there that he can press, and even if I did say them, it won't end up on the air. So there's controls and protections on some of these content channels, but then there's not in other areas. So this is one, as you're you're looking at this, is it going to be self-regulated as the Internet is now, or does it make sense to put some controls around this from a public policy perspective? So data privacy and surveillance of your behavior is not something that is new with Facebook and Google. And hopefully through the, the first uh, kind of chunk of the program here, I've been able to make that point. If you're uh, just joining us on air now, uh, you're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and we're talking about the reality of data privacy. Uh, data privacy is not something that's uh, just now in the last decade. Facebook's only 10 years old, so it's not that all of our inf information was private and we weren't being profiled and we weren't being targeted with advertising business models 
before a decade ago or even before 20 years ago. Google's only 20 years old. This has been going on for all the way back into history. Uh, and I mean, we talked about radio. You're not paying to listen to this on 1200 WAI right now. This is supported by advertising dollars here. And all the infrastructure to broadcast and let this run is paid for by advertisers on our radio station. Your television broadcast, you can get an antenna and listen to signals. And those are paid for by advertising dollars. So it's one here now where you go, you know what? Well, I'm, I'm okay with my bank tracking me and giving me targeted car loans. I'm okay with the retailers that I visit linking up information with my credit card that I use so that they can send me mail to my physical mailbox. I'm okay with those ones, Brett. But what I really tuned in here was for you to explain to me how to stay safe on the Internet, how to keep my Internet communications privacy. Who can really surveil me on the Internet? So we'll do a, a starting chunk here heading into our bottom of the hour break but then we'll we'll really dive into the depth of this in the second half of the program uh, if you aren't going to stay around on the radio and want to catch this it'll go up on our website uh, www.cybertalkradio.com on tuesday it'll be available via itunes podcast or pocket cast or you can go to youtube and, and look at a great still photo uh, of us and see me with my hands held out as i talk to myself in a monologue for 50 minutes uh, on youtube because we do not do video of CyberTalk Radio. Uh, do not plan on doing video anytime soon. We've been asked a few times, and it just it changes the whole way the, the room behaves when you've got a camera watching you. So it's kind of interesting to think about as we talk about privacy. Just the fact that I know right now I can scratch my eye or I can look off at the corner of the room, I can roll my eyes, and it doesn't make any difference uh, because... Right now, physically, what I'm doing in the room is private to, to you, the audience, and there's that separation there. Jumping into the, the Internet privacy piece, so uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, uh, published a, a nice blog post. We will uh, link that along with our, our episode release here recently talking uh, some about privacy on the Internet. And then uh, The Guardian wrote a, a nice article as well titled, uh, Facebook Surveillance is Nothing Compared with Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon. So this is the one, this Guardian one, and then some of the commentary on the Internet uh, about this Guardian article is what really triggered me to do our first monologue episode here on CyberTalk Radio. So many of the folks kind of fired back, uh, and these are, are technical people in the, the tech forums and audiences that I read and hang out in. And they said, Google and Facebook know way more about you than your ISP. I can just get on a VPN and my ISP can't see anything. I'm going to say that's absolutely not true. So to, to give you some more about my background, I say at the, the start of CyberTalk Radio, I'm a 20-year internet security veteran. So I started off that 20 years of, of internet security actually working for the phone company. Um, in the managed network services and managed security operations. Worked uh, hands-on as a security researcher in the lab, working with VPN equipment to see if we could find flaws and feed those back to the vendors so that uh, our customers could stay safe. So uh, I worked in the plumbing of all of this network infrastructure. I'm a network engineer and network security engineer by trade and spent most of my time in that. I've done system administration, a number of other aspects as well, but the OSI model and I are old friends. Uh, this is the, you can look it up online. I wrote a blog post about it uh, a few years ago, uh, trying to explain it out for layman's term, but it's the it's the model that goes and talks all the way from the physical cable. It's a seven-layer model up through to the application, which like might be a web page. Uh, is a modern application, and you've got your web browser that's the layer below that that handles the presentation of that web page up to 
to you and shows you. So this is about how technology communicates top to bottom. So we'll go through and look at this surveillance capability and data collection capability. So let's say I'm, I'm paranoid and I want to just use VPN to, to do absolutely everything. And I'm on a, as a user, I'm on a tier one ISP. And so that tier one ISP serves me as an end user, but they also operate a backbone. And that backbone is used to transit traffic um, from your connection to other sites, but it will also transit traffic from one provider to another. So you, it'll act as an intermediary between different users that are not even necessarily customers of that ISP. So if I'm watching a, a user and I can see that whether it's active or not active. So is there anything, any traffic going from that local DSL or whatever your high-speed internet connection is, fiber, cable, whatever it is, I can see whether you're sending packets over that right now. I can see just from looking at the metadata on those packets. So all the traffic on the internet generally travels over IP. Uh, it's a, a protocol that is predominantly used for everything on the internet. There's different types of IP protocols. You often hear it TCP IP. TCP is a specific protocol that rides on top of IP. And you, you probably heard about IP addresses. And that IP address is says, where's the traffic coming from? And then where's it going to? And that information has to be visible. So even if you're encrypting your whole session and you're working with a VPN provider, I can see at a minimum that you're connecting up to a VPN provider because I know the IP of you, I know the IP of these VPN providers, they have to publish them so that you can connect to them. So now I know you're trying to be private and you're trying to hide who you're having conversations with. So let's say that I see that you, you send a request up through to this VPN and then a few milliseconds to seconds later, I see that you get seven packets back in a reply. And I can see the size of those packets. I can see the time it took in between. I can see that two of them showed up right away, but a few others showed up a little bit later. And I can see the latency between those packets. And so when you go visit a web page, as an example, so let's say in this, in this one, we're going to go visit a web page to this VPN tunnel. That web page has the base content, the HTML. And that's pulled down from one location. And then maybe it has some images on it that are pulled down from other locations. So when you make that request to a web page, you might get six or seven or 200 on some web pages, different requests back. You're going to get different packets sent back to you. So now as your ISP, I can know that if I've gone and scanned and profiled a bunch of websites, so I've crawled the internet, I've built my own crawler, and I've looked and seen which websites send seven packets back of this size and which websites have this type of delay fingerprint between the time on those packets. I can, even though you've gone through a VPN and all I get to see is some encrypted chunks coming back, likely what web page you just went to visit. Now, can I see more specifically into that? Not completely yet, but we're going to dive in after the break and I'm going to tell you how things can get even a little bit more creepy.
electronic files and digital data are the lifeblood of many businesses, with ransomware, malware, and global networks of criminal hackers who can attack and destroy from anywhere in the world. These files and data are now under constant threat. Here are three tips on how businesses can protect their data. 1. Begin with an encrypted off-site data backup. 2. Establish an active network defense against criminal hackers. 3. Secure your data when it travels outside of your office. All three steps are required to build an active security shield as sophisticated and multi-layered as the threat themselves. Learn more on CyberTalkRadio.com, brought to you by Jungle Disk. Safe from accidents, safe from attacks, only with Jungle Disk, the number one data security suite for Main Street. Jungle Disk provides network security and backup solutions to shield your critical business data from system failure, human error, and cyber attacks. Reach out to learn more at jungledisc.com and let us know you heard about Jungle Disc on iHeartRadio. Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. We're talking about the uh, reality of data privacy. If you uh, just joined us after that news, traffic, and weather update, you can listen to the first half of the program uh, where I covered uh, data privacy as it went back before the Internet. In this segment, we're going to dive deep into who can watch what you're doing online and how. The rebroadcast of this will be up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com as well as on iTunes, uh, Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or any of your other favorite podcasting apps on an Android device uh, on Tuesday. If you're listening to us on one of those services, thank you for uh, being a listener of CyberTalk Radio. Uh, you can also follow us online at Twitter, Facebook, and provide comments, feedback on what you'd like to hear us uh, cover more on the program, uh, what we're doing well, that we also would like to hear what we can do to improve. So as we headed into that bottom of the hour break, uh, I was talking about you're a paranoid now, you're on the internet, uh, you're trying to keep yourself safe from your ISP, you don't want them to see what you're doing, so you used a VPN service and you, you thought they couldn't tell what site you had visited, but then I, I kind of walked through a pretty simple example uh, where you go to a web page, that web page actually is made up of multiple requests, those requests have different timing and sizing and delays and then the isp can see from their pattern this can see from the pattern with those requests uh, what website you likely visited because the packets are going to come back from that vpn provider back to your ip address on your internet connection now take this out a step further so if i'm a major provider and i've got a backbone that your traffic might go up to that vpn provider but then it might go actually out of the vpn provider back across my backbone a second time over to the the website and some of those requests to that website might be encrypted some of the requests might not be encrypted uh, many websites uh, will serve up a portion of their their site in https with an encrypted tunnel uh, but many of them will also serve up some portion of the content 
in an unencrypted manner. And he said, well, you know what, Brett? I'm not visiting websites. I'm using a VPN provider, and I'm using that VPN provider to go through, and I'm, I'm just going to SSH, and I'm going to communicate with people over on a private encrypted IRC server. So now I'm on my own private encrypted internet relay chat server that's set up in a private network of chat servers. I'm connecting to it through a VPN and then through an SSH connection through that VPN onto that chat server. So now you're sitting there typing along on your keyboard. And when you type on your keyboard, there's a timing delay between how long it takes you to hit each key on your keyboard. And your SSH client may or may not be set to send a single packet per keystroke. So as you type, because you want it to be real-time, like as you're looking at the, there on the other end of the connection to see those characters popping up on that terminal screen uh, for that, that relay chat server as you're typing along. No one likes to see that character lag. They don't like to see where it batches up and sends a bunch of characters at once because it just feels funny when you're typing that way. So most SSH clients are, are configured to send one packet per keystroke. And if you're doing that and I'm monitoring your connection, I could actually have a pretty good chance to make out exactly what you're typing by monitoring the keystroke delays. And you go, this is crazy talk, Brett. This doesn't happen. Well, go ahead and do a little bit of internet research. There's some really nice papers written about this that are much more academic than I'll be here on the air. Uh, but this is not impossible, and it's not even that complicated. Now, do I think your ISPs are doing this stuff? No, they're not actually doing this. But when you look at someone's capability and ability to surveil and go through your data privacy, that being on that internet connection and that pipe has ultimate power, much more so than being an application provider on the internet. Even if you're an application provider like Google or Facebook that has tracking cookies and JavaScript embedded across millions or billions of different web properties, so they can see all the things that you're doing at the application layer on the web. They can't see all of the other things that you're doing on the internet and they they don't have a profile into your offline purchasing habits or other things unless they're buying that information from somebody else. Uh, they're likely buying it from a data broker because as we talked about before uh, in the first half of the program, many of the agreements you enter into put your purchasing habits and other information up for sale. That information gets bought incorporated into a data set at a Facebook or a Google, but it's not data that they're originating themselves or that they are the the primary source of truth for being able to gather and collect that information. So now I've told you that if you're on your internet connection, you're going through a VPN, you're using SSH, that you still can't stay private from your ISP. Yes, this is all true, you can't. And that there are they likely monitoring? No, they're not. What should you do if you want to stay private on the internet? What should you do if you want to stay private with your digital communications between you and other people? There's lots of really advanced obfuscation techniques that you can use to keep your information potentially private from your ISP or cover it in so much noise that your ISP is going to really have to do a lot of work to be able to get through that. I'm not going to cover all of that on the air, but it's one where you would have to go out of your way to, to do activities to make it to where your ISP does not have a good idea of what you're doing. So now backing out of, of the, the tinfoil hat realm of the world just to regular everyday usage of the internet. So I'm going to ask for a show of hands unless you're driving a car. Don't raise your hand right now. But show of hands of how many people know how to configure their DNS settings that are listening to this. 
And if you're, you're not raising your hand that you know how to configure your DNS settings, so that's the domain name request service. Uh, that's what handles turning uh, a name like www.cybertalkradio.com into a number IP address that computers use to communicate back and forth. So your internet service provider, by default, provides you domain name servers to use. So even if you're going to a website and you're communicating to a website via SSL, so you get the little padlock in your browser up there, your ISP can very easily collect a log of what websites you went to, what time of day you went to the website, how many different pages you visited there, because they can see all those requests going through the domain name system. And they can see the traffic going to and from the IP addresses. Again, remember the metadata that we talked about earlier, there's that to and from address uh, on the service. Even if you're using that VPN, let's say, but you didn't actually, because you were going to stay safe, so you heard an advertisement for a VPN service, you signed up for this VPN, you're using it. Unless that VPN is proxying your, your DNS requests, uh, then those DNS requests may still be using your ISP settings, and you're going to go up through a tunnel back to your ISP's DNS servers. You're going to request the IP address for the website. You're going to go try to visit through the secure tunnel to hide from your ISP, and they're still going to find out. So it's really complicated to hide your, your information. But for the average Internet user, your, your ISP knows all about every different site you connect to on the Internet, how often you log into your bank. They know... And, and your bank doesn't likely have a Facebook login. They, your bank likely does not have a sign-in with Google or Google tracking pixels or Facebook tracking pixels on the website. So um, maybe your your bank has a, a information sharing agreement where they sell some of the website usage information to somebody else. Maybe they don't. Uh, that'll uh, and I'm not sure the exact regulations there are. They allowed to sell that in the, the financial world. Certain information sharing is regulated. Some of it is not regulated. In our web tracking behavior, most of it is not regulated in the U.S. at this point. Uh, it's been regulated in Europe for a while, and with GDPR coming this summer, is getting uh, much more regulated about what they're allowed to collect and keep. Uh, the U.S., the, the laws are, are very laissez-faire. So it's not to say there's no regulation. There's just not much of it. Your your ISP, though, can go going back to this, can see how often you log into your bank, how often you log into everything that you do online how many hours of netflix video you stream so if you're if your isp is also your tv provider that isp can see how many hours of netflix you watch how many hours of hulu how many hours of tv you watch on their service so they can they can know you know what he's now watching more hours of streaming online than he's watching on our tv service they, he's now a churn risk for our TV service. So they can start forecasting and modeling there and maybe they they go, you know what, we're going to now offer a, a bundle to this customer saying that uh, if you would like to go internet only, internet only is going to cost you $80 a month or you could have TV and internet for $84.99 a month because you know now that the TV value has gone down for this user but the value of the internet has gone up because they're using it to consume more content. So it you'll see different collection and monitoring like this driving pricing behavior at your, your internet service provider. They're absolutely going to be looking at just because you're watching p perhaps less of their television services doesn't mean you're using the infrastructure that they've built less. You're just using it differently. And that type of stuff's absolutely being looked at. Okay, so you go, you know what, Brett, I'm going to I'm gonna use a s secure DNS service. So uh, I'm going to switch over to this new 1.1.1.1 from uh, Cloudflare or I'm going to I'm going to switch over to I think there's also 9.9.9.9 .9 .9 .9, another one that that promises to be a 
a secure and private DNS server. So that's all wonderful, except the fact that now, unless you're really technically advanced again, so you went into your basic DNS settings in your operating system, which you can do on your computer, but go ahead and go try to change your DNS settings on your cell phone for me. Oh, wait. Yeah, you can't. Now, your cell phone, when you hop on Wi-Fi, it will get information via DHCP. That's your uh, dynamic host configuration protocol. So when it'll give you an IP address, it'll give you DNS information. So you could go change your settings on your router or if you're using a Wi-Fi that you control and you could change the DNS that is handed out to users on your network. So you could go change that to the 1.1.1.1 or uh, others. Uh, Google operates some DNS servers, so if you already assume Google has all of your information, go ahead and give them more. So they, they operate 8.8.8.8. Uh, was that four eights? It, it's not, it should have been. So there's, there's four numbers in every IP address. And you, you could go change that there. Uh, now, though, as, as you go through and still see this, you have to do another step to ensure that those DNS requests are actually encrypted because by default, DNS is unencrypted. It just uses uh, a protocol called UDP. It sends the request over because the way that the DNS designers thought about it, they weren't thinking about it from a privacy first perspective. They were thinking about it like you're looking up public information in a phone book and no one hides requests in a phone book. Like if you, you go in there, you're flipping through, there's names, there's at phone numbers, maybe there's addresses depending on the phone book, and you would just be looking up public information. And so the DNS designers didn't think, well, anyone looking up publicly available information, that doesn't need to be private. And you know what? No one's going to monitor that anyways. Well, some folks have. So yeah, even if you're using someone else's DNS servers, depending on those servers and lots of other technical settings, your ISP still may be able to see all of your different DNS requests. You go, you know what, Brett? Well, I'm really, really paranoid. So I'm going to use a VPN service and then I'm going to go through Tor and I'm going to bounce my connection all over the world and then I'm going to come back through to here. So when you're going in and out of, of Tor, which is another obfuscation network, how do you trust those Tor endpoints? Do you know that they're not logging your connection? Do they know? Do you know? Because if you're still sending through at some point there, that session's got to come out. It has to make the request out to that end server. It's got to get back to that end of the Tor network. It's got to get travel traverse it back through to you. So you can do many layered things to try to obfuscate stuff. Uh, but there's lots of non-complex at this point ways uh, to still understand your behavior and your usage there. And in order to to really stay private, like you have to think about, am I only going to access it from certain computers? Am I going to only, I'm not going to go now use Wi-Fi at, at a restaurant anymore or other places because who knows what's on that network and what they're monitoring and surveilling. It, it gets real complicated from that ISP level and perspective. And ultimately... This is the same as uh, you, you look across on the, we'll go tie this back a little bit into the physical here for a second, but uh, and there's been a number of articles recently about the network of real-time cameras they've rolled out in uh, some of the major cities in China to where you can pass a, a picture of somebody through and then in a few minutes uh, they can get the trail, of, they can say here's where that person's at and here's the trail of breadcrumbs where that person went over the last 45 minutes through the series of cameras. So this same level of monitoring can happen on the internet of your traffic, of what you're doing, your behavior with a non-trivial but non-complex. So like it's it's in the realm of this is very 
doable and achievable out there. And you can try to take lots of activities to keep your information private from your internet service provider, but it's, it's not very easy. Now, I mean, the good news, as I talk about all this trying to stay safe on the internet and hide things, I don't believe that your internet service provider actually has a better view into your life than many of the physical things that we talked about before the break. And we didn't go super deep into uh, many of the different physical examples there, but I'll, I'll hit another anecdotal one here real quick. So there was uh, news articles you can look up about this one as well. Target got some bad press for sending maternity information uh, on discounts and coupons to a house. And so they were going through and tracking and looking at the combination of purchases people were making, and they were using those combination of purchases to predict if somebody was pregnant or not. And if they, they looked at the different things that were being bought, I don't know exactly what it was, peanut butter and pickles, or different things that you're like, no one in their right mind would eat peanut butter and pickles, except apparently that's something that's on, uh, that during pregnancy with uh, hormone changes, sometimes people like peanut butter and pickles together. So you, you see... But those two things bought together, and then you would could make a safe assumption there's a 90% chance somebody's pregnant at that house. So we're going to go ahead and send them some coupons because 9 out of 10, and this is going to be a valuable coupon. It'll get them back in the store again. Well, this this happened at, at Target, except this was uh, ended up being the way that a, a couple of parents found out their teenage daughter was pregnant. So not great. Yeah, my producer is uh, – this is what we talked about not being on camera. It's probably good because there's some eye rolling and uh, some, oh, my goodness, that's kind of terrible. But this, that happened. There was a, another retailer out there. So let's say you, you, know, you go, you know what, I'm only going to pay cash in a retail store. I'm going to try to hide and not let people know that I was here. So – and your cell phone carried around in your pocket still while you're coming out of that store to pay cash? So your cell phone's got – Maybe low-energy Bluetooth turned on all the time. Maybe not. Even if you've turned off the Bluetooth, it still may have low-energy Bluetooth turned on you. There's another separate super-secret set settings where you can turn that off on some phones, but you can't turn it off on all of them. Maybe it has NFC turned on still. Let's say you have your Wi-Fi on all the time because you got a data plan where you want to be able to use Wi-Fi as much as you can. But even if you've got low-energy Bluetooth turned off and Bluetooth turned off and NFC turned off and Wi-Fi turned off, you probably still have your cellular connection turned on. And your phone's broadcasting information to talk to the cell tower. So you're inside of my store. I can put up an antenna to monitor that, and I can look at the metadata on that again, and I can create a unique ID for you. I may not be able to tie that back if you came into the store today and bought with cash, but the moment that you buy once from me with a credit card, I can now tie... So I've effectively created a tracking cookie for you in the physical world based off of the metadata from coming from your cell phone inside of my store. And I can see that you walked around, you stood in front of these racks for a certain amount of time, you then went up to the cash register, and then I recorded a cash transaction at that cash register for $300 at that, that point that you were there. So I know how much you spent. And then the moment you pay with a credit card once in any of my stores or a bank card or you write me a check, or maybe when you're up there paying in cash, if you're trying to be privacy conscious, you probably didn't sign up for my membership club, but maybe you did in that moment of weakness because you were going to get 20% extra off. I, I now know your entire purchase behavior, and I can tie that back specifically to you. So tracking cookies exist online and offline. And you go, you know what? Well, like Google and Facebook are just giant, and they're everywhere on the Internet. Well, you go, how many retailers are giant and have stores everywhere? So lots of them. And if you start looking at your online habits, you go, you know what, online, I'm forced to go to Google and Facebook everywhere. Chances are offline, 
you probably only shop at one or maybe two grocery stores. You probably really only shop at one or two different clothing stores. Um, so in the offline world, you're likely concentrating your behavior in a few number of places the same way you are in the online world. So these risks in the online world are not new. And then um, from that, that data privacy in the online perspective, are they keeping the information longer now? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Um, are is it more accessible now and more process? Like, are they able to process it and and do things more effectively? Maybe than they were before. But like, if I was making a uh, if I ran a, a television station before and I was going to sell advertising in my television station, I'm going to make a script and a TV program that I know is likely to attract a specific demographic audience, whatever that demographic audience is. So if I have advertisers coming to me going. I want the 19 to 35 male demographic in San Antonio that likes technology, so they're more likely to be college educated. I could do a Tech Talk TV program that's going to be likely to attack that, uh, attract that crowd, and then advertisers could target directly to that audience. So, um, I mean, is it as easy as it is on Facebook where you can just go in as an advertiser and pick a drop-down list of the demographics you would like and, and target ads? No, but... It's ultimately the same effect. It's just happening on a slower basis. And it's one where in the, the TV or radio broadcasting world, it's restricted to large advertisers and large publishers there uh, of content. On the internet world, it really makes targeted advertising accessible to everybody. So a small business can now do targeted advertising. Uh, like I know our, our producer also has a band. Uh, we can... Uh, it performs here around here in San Antonio sometimes, goes on tour, uh, usually at least once a year. And uh, when they're going out on tour, he uses targeted folks to that way he, when he's headed on the way into a city. People that like that type of music get to see ads online before the band arrives. And you know what? That's a, a good use of targeted advertising in a way because they show up and they have fun at the show and it's a, a wonderful thing. And so you go, all this d- lack of data privacy is just evil. Well, is it evil if it helps you discover things you enjoy? And in a non-malicious manner, it's not. Uh, but if it's information's collected and used for bad purposes and for evil, then it is evil. But the collection of information itself is not evil on its own. So talking about collecting and using information for evil. So uh, is, uh, over the last few weeks, uh, there was a major, I'm going to call it Russian internet outage uh, caused by private chat service called telegram so it it, telegram initially got blocked inside of russia telegram moved uh some of their infrastructure into the amazon and google clouds to proxy that information through uh the reaction from the the russian government there was just to blanket ban all the ip addresses on amazon web services and on google's computing cloud uh, inside of russia which took all sorts of other legitimate websites offline um, Telegram kept working because um, this is uh, one of these tricky things. If you're trying to obfuscate your communication connections, you can bounce things around and it's hard to pin stuff down on the internet. So the Telegram folks are playing a little bit of game of cat and mouse, kind of whack a mole, uh, where their infrastructure is running in one spot, running in another place. They get that spot blocked. The next, They move it to the next place. So shutting down a uh, a private chat communication service is, has proven difficult. Uh, China's been working to have a, a controlled internet for the longest time. They've, they talk about the, the Great Firewall of China. And 
it, it's proven very difficult uh, for them. They've gone back and forth with turning all sorts of VPN stuff on and off over time, blocking certain services. They've asked service providers that are going to operate in that country to allow them a certain amount of additional surveillance. Um, some of the folks have opted out of operating in China um, because of those rules and regulations. So as you, you're looking at uh, using this information and folks are using a service like Telegram in Russia, maybe because they're looking to organize a political party to to run against the uh, current folks that are elected. And those folks that are elected don't necessarily want a qualified opponent. So they're looking to surveil, monitor, and then take potentially harmful action to uh, eliminate those opposition opponents. And this is where data surveillance and collection can be used for not good. Uh, and it's a, it's a tricky balance out there. Whether you want to be able to stay private is not an easy thing to go do. If you would like to have a more in-depth and a longer discussion about this, maybe we'll do a, a CyberTalk Radio on the road or a, a CyberTalk Radio hangout. So if you uh, listen to this, message us on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, we'll look at getting something uh, organized at a security conference or uh, a local uh, quiet place where we can have uh, no microphones, monitors, or surveillance uh, of our conversation at a place here and a location to be determined later in San Antonio, Texas.